Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Howie Zales. Howie is an Emmy award-winning camera operator who turned his passion for television broadcasting into several entrepreneurial endeavors. He created HJZ Productions in the year 2000 to address the need for professional-level sports crewing and staffing in the New York market. And under his leadership, the company grew to a multi-million-dollar nationwide provider of top talent in the broadcasting field. In 2019, Howie and his team founded Veridity Entertainment Services, which initially focused on staffing in non-union markets. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020, they quickly pivoted to offering best-in-class broadcast-quality live streams, of professional sports shows and interviews, corporate interviews and meetings, and religious services. In addition, Howie took his love of the television production business and created the TV sports course, a hands-on training bootcamp for the next generation of television crew professionals. Howie is a graduate of the State University of New York at Plattsburgh's Mass Communication Program. Howie, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, JR. I'm honored to be here. Let's start with sort of the beginning of your career. You started as a camera operator. When did all that start for you? And what were some of the early things that you worked on? I graduated college in 1994, and I pounded the pavement in New York City and tried to find anywhere that had whatever, whatever productions listed as the company name. Yeah. And I found a job as a production assistant and made my way to a camera operator eventually. But sports was my goal, and I took a job eventually shooting news, but I just didn't know how to get into shooting television sports. I put it out there in the universe, and I'm a true believer in that. If you let everyone in the universe know what you want, somehow, some way, it'll come to be. One yeah. day in the newsroom, ESPN was doing a University of Vermont basketball game, and the place I was shooting news was in upstate New York. One of their camera operators got sick at the last second, so they desperate need called and said, hey, do you know anyone that could fill in? And because everyone knew that's what I wanted to do, news director recommended me and that was my first job, and I met the right people. And one job became another job, became another job to the point where yeah. eventually my news job was getting in the way of me freelancing doing TV sports. I love stories like that, where it's like you're in the right place at the right time, but you've kind of created the circumstances. But everybody knew what you wanted to do, right? So they knew who to give the opportunity to when it arose. And it's just fun to hear stories where serendipity actually worked in your favor and launched you off on something that you'd been wanting to do. Who won the basketball game? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd remember. It's kind of like having your first dollar up on the wall when you run. I do know game. that I carried a piece of cable from the TV truck into the arena and ran it backwards. That happens one time in one's career. Yeah. <laughs> and then you learn not to do that again, probably. Ever again. 
you know, for your career longevity is probably as well as for your back, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you were pretty much in, other than doing the early news work, which I assume was up near Plattsburgh, but since then, it the shift of the sports happened relatively quickly for you. What was it about wanting to film sports that appealed to you? I wanted to play professional baseball growing up. I did okay. everything I could to play baseball, hitting clinics, everything. But I knew I needed a backup. I needed one class in 11th grade. I p- chose a selective. It was a TV production course. It was a trip to NBC Studios and Rockefeller Center, a tour of the studios, and also to watch a show being taped live. I'm like, well, how bad could that be, right? Easy A. I fell in love with TV production. I already love sports. What better way to combine the both for a career? Yeah, I remember I was maybe about 12. I went to watch the taping of its sitcom. It was a terrible okay. sitcom. I, I don't think it ever got out of the initial buy of like uh, four weeks or whatever they did, but... We went to see it when we went to visit some relatives out in, in California. It is so cool when you get to watch the scenes kind of being set up and just the takes again and again until they get it right. And yep. the audience, That this is back in the era of, this probably was a laugh track, although we were laughing a little bit, but I'm sure the show had a laugh track. But it was just, for me, it was a cool experience. Obviously, it wasn't the direction that I chose, but yeah, I've always appreciated just the sort of the magic that goes into filming, especially a live event and yeah. the lack of room for error that you have in terms of how you do it. So you've done a lot of sports over the years. What are what are some of the sports that you've covered? What are the main sports you've covered? Well, when I first started out, I started out doing local sports in New York and New England, anything mm. from Celtics to Bruins to Red Sox to mostly Yankees, Mets, Rangers, Knicks, Devils. Then I did a horse race for a third-party company, but it aired on NBC from Belmont Park which is Mm -hmm. in New York City, for those that don't know. And NBC sent their biggest director who did all of their football and all their big-time sporting events. And I busted my butt. I did a really good job. I did everything he asked for, plus more. And after the show, he came up to me and said, hey, we're starting this new football league called the XFL. And this was in 2000. And he said, would you be interested in being a camera operator? I said, of course. And he said, mm-hmm. why don't you come to Notre Dame? Because NBC has a Notre Dame football contract. We'll test right. out your football skills. And if you do a good job in a game or two, then we'll invite you on the package. So long story short, I shot XFL that year. I did Notre Dame football for over 20 years. I traveled around the globe with NBC Sports for over 20 years doing Olympics Kentucky Derbies, Preakness, Belmont Stakes, so many different shows. And I traveled with the World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE, around the globe doing all of their shows and over 20 WrestleManias, which is their signature. Yeah. As a big sports fan, I'm pretty envious. (laughs) I've dressed as a member of the band to get into a college basketball game, but I have never done camera crewing. So you won an Emmy. You won at least one Emmy, right? Uh, Yeah. For the work you've done. So what was Uh, that for? For our work in the Beijing Olympics, gymnastics. Awesome. That's impressive. So you've got that on your resume, which not a lot of people can say. Describe like when you go to prepare for an event, what's the sort of just most people think of you just there with your camera, but what goes into the preparation for you as a camera operator and part of the production crew? So we're trying to tell a story, right? To the viewers at home, the announcers are telling a story through their words we're supporting the story the announcers are telling with our pictures. So if the announcers are talking about 
Aaron Judge from the New York Yankees, we have to know immediately what Aaron Judge looks like, what number he is, and so on and so forth. If it's a football game and they're talking about Mm -hmm. the offensive coordinator, he's up in a box. We have to know what he looks like. So when they're talking about him, we can get a shot at him. So we have to be prepared with the knowledge of who these people are, what their numbers or what they look like, and what significance to the story they have that we're trying to tell. In live sporting events, pretty high pressure situations. How do you keep yourself calm and focused during those events that you're crewing? Yeah, I mean, it's just another event. Most of us have done it a million times, even the Super Bowl, right? Super Bowl is probably one of the biggest events on the planet. But as soon as that whistle blows and the ball is kicked, it's just another football game with a longer halftime. With a longer halftime, that's for sure. So do you <laughs> not get caught up in the action when it's like a particularly close, gripping sporting event? Only if that action comes very close to hitting me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've wound up in the hospital three times with three separate concussions on the sideline from doing football. Actually, oh, yeah. two from football, one from baseball. Wow. What had happened in baseball? You ended up with a concussion. Yeah, I was at the Mets were playing at Shea Stadium at the time before City Field was built. I was yeah. doing a camera on the third base sideline, Colorado okay. Rockies, the Colorado Rockies dugout. So there was a runner on second. And in baseball, you have different assignments depending on if it's a righty, lefter, batter up, and depending where the lead runner is on base. So yeah. it was a right-handed batter up. So that means I don't shoot the batter. And there was a runner on second. So my responsibility was to shoot the runner on second, because if there was a hit, that means I'd have to take him around to score. Right. Right. But you're always watching the pitch. Should there be a foul ball or anything? So I'm like this, right. Watching the pitch. Yeah. Next thing I know I'm in a hospital. Yeah. Joe McCune got out in front of a curveball, an off-speed pitch and like out of totally in foul territory. And it hit me right here. And I fell into the Colorado Rockies dugout. But the funny part of that story is that because they were attending to me in the dugout, the game stopped. The pitcher kept walking around the pitcher's mound. And when I got hit, jerked the camera from second base to the pitcher's mound. And they used my camera three times. And I'm half dead on the ground in the dugout. On the fourth time, they used my camera because they're still working on me. The pitcher walks off the pitcher's mound onto the grass, and I didn't pan with him. And they're yelling at me, camera five, pan, pan, pan. And as they're yelling at me, <laughs> it gets back to our TV truck that it was me that it was hit. Oh, so they didn't even know that you were hit until then. That's wild. Yeah. Nobody else saw it. None of the other people on the crew I mean, saw. the other camera people on our show didn't realize it. But I was standing next to another camera operator who was working on a different feed because there's always several feeds that are going on. So by the time he relayed it back to his TV truck and someone ran out of their truck into our TV truck. So it all happened kind of slow. Wow. For the most part, are the people who are working as camera operators during a big network sporting event on TV, are they freelancers or are they employees of the network? Freelancers, but paid as employees. Okay. And I assume most of the networks, it's all union people. Yes. Yeah. I know you've done some work in non-union markets. What are the what are the bigger non-union markets that you've supported? We don't really do too much non-union stuff. We have two companies, basically. And our first company hires union TV crews. 
And our second company pre-COVID was started to support our clients who were traveling in, people that travel with their show every week. And we were going to basically take on the burden of payrolling them, getting them up to speed in harassment and workplace harassment, and just basically helping them to abide by New York state law. And then COVID hit and it shut everything down. So that was the end of the non-union work that you were doing, huh? Basically, we pivoted that company into a full-fledged live stream and event company. And that's what our primary focus is on now is live streaming virtual and hybrid events, whether it's corporate meetings or sporting events, concerts, cooking shows, anything. Yeah. I interviewed a live streaming company out in the California area. He was previously doing ticket resale. So he had a ticket resale platform that, similar to your story, completely dead in the water when COVID started since there were no live events. And this has probably been close to six months at this point since I talked to him. But I have to imagine it, even for a lot of live performances, he talks about it as going beyond the four walls, right? You now can do all these events that used to be constrained by how big the venue was and how many tickets you could sell. And now you can sell tickets for the venue. But if you choose, you can also sell live streaming of the same event for people who can't go to the venue. Is that a big part of your mix or is it more like pure live stream events? We live stream like events that are where there's an in-person audience and we create the in-person and the virtual experience. We can do anything basically we've done where it's fully virtual or where everyone's in their home or office. We've done like a roundtable talk or a four-person interview. Everyone's fully virtual to where it's we have an in-person audience and then thousands of people are watching globally. Yeah. I wonder how much this will all change in terms of these hybrid events, right? With the live and the in-person audience. It's something certainly that it's probably a lot more artist willingness to do. Yeah. I feel like it's in its infancy. It's only going to become more popular because now... If you're talking strictly corporate, right, it's less expensive than traveling everyone to one location, especially if we're talking an international company, right? And you can still get the message out the same exact way. And people are more productive because now they don't have to leave their home area where they're living. They can be more productive and it costs the company less money with hotel rooms and flights and things like that. And if it's sporting events that are live streamed, you can get some of the lower end sports live streamed because it's less expensive than putting it on TV. We can bring certain equipment to, let's say a smaller track and field event, put Mm -hmm. that on a live stream and it costs a third of what it would cost to do it. If you brought in a TV truck and a full TV crew. Why is that? Because we can live stream over the internet to any network with less equipment and without a TV truck. A TV Mm -hmm. truck, basically, depending on the size of it, could be $20,000 a day. A streaming computer you can rent for $2,000 a day. And then you would need the cameras and stuff. And so it'd be a little more piecemealed, but still would be less expensive. Okay. How has the technology changed? You've been doing this for 25 plus years at this point. How much has the technology changed over the course of, I mean, clearly we've got digital cameras and the 4K and all of the sort of advances in terms of resolution, but how else has it changed? The changes 
that you ask about really only came into play in the last like two or three years. I mean, mm. the cameras still weigh the same. The lenses still weigh the same. It's not like anything's gotten any lighter. The big changes are in cloud production, where basically you can now, instead of having a full TV crew show up on location, people can work from their homes. And so the same way it's affected a lot of the corporate world, it's definitely changed the way we do production in the cloud. Do you think, will there be a logical next step to where more and more of the cameras are basically pre-positioned, controlled remotely, so that even the camera operators aren't local, that that's all kind of being done from a central location as well? There are a certain amount of robotic cameras on each show, and those robotic cameras can only be in certain locations, but it's very rare. I really do not think most camera positions will be replaced by robotic cameras. You just need a human and you need the style of camera to be able to do what they currently do. And no robotic camera that exists now can take that place. I mean, I would imagine just your ability to see the broader event. And the way we operate, right? This is like if you're doing a handheld camera or one of the big studio cameras, right? You're always looking out of your viewfinder this way or a key. I always, which I always did a handheld camera, so I'd always shoot with this eye open to see what can I be seeing or shooting. And you can't do that a robotic camera because you're just looking at a monitor. When you're doing the events that you mentioned a little bit ago of trying to create the sort of production of both the live and the virtual experience. Are you doing a lot of really specific things to create a more immersive experience for somebody who's watching virtually? Yeah, good question. So if we're doing, let's say, we'll take a corporate event where there's like a PowerPoint presentation, okay? We'll have monitors or screens in person and we'll project those screens in person. Because if you're there in person, you don't need to see the speaker on the screen because you're watching them. But in the virtual experience, we'll create an entire TV show and right. we'll show we'll have a camera shot of the person talking. Then we'll take the PowerPoint presentation full. Then we'll have a two box where it's just a little box of the person speaking on the right, then a bigger box on the left of the PowerPoint presentation. And then when they give us the cube with the clicker we provide, we change the PowerPoint and we cut back and forth to make it more interesting. We just don't sit on one shot the entire time. How about some of the more sort of advanced things that people have been trying in terms of, I mean, certainly the whole 3D thing kind of came and went in the television era, I guess, you know, it didn't really take off, but are there other things that you feel like are, have a chance of becoming more common in, in creating that kind of different home experience and just sitting in front of a box and watching the TV? In terms of sporting events? But sporting events or anything else, right? Just to make it feel more like you're there, right? I mean, I know they've, there's been things like letting you pick which camera angle that you see and yeah. things like that. I feel like that was there for a while. It didn't really kind of last. I feel like people are doing too much at one time. So for so many different choices like that, I think a lot of that stuff is just a bit of a gimmick. I really wondered whether people were going to sit in front of their television next to each other on the couch with goggles on. I had a hard time seeing that one, but I can appreciate that even the picking your own camera angle, it's like it's work, right? I just want to watch a sporting event. The other problem is that is a camera operator, you know when the director is using your camera because you get a little red light, right? Yeah. On your camera. Then when you're off, you're moving around trying to find your next shot. That can be very annoying at home if you're trying to pick your camera angle when the camera stays put for five seconds and it's moving around again. So, I mean, it's a gimmick. 
more sporting events lately have been on streaming services. I mean, at least a little bit, right? Amazon picking things up, Apple, others. Yeah. As a crew member, does that have much of a difference for you or is it pretty much yeah. we're just shooting it and it's broadcast in a different way? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah okay. So talk a little bit about the production company where we've covered a little bit of that, but what are some of the other things that you do and what kind of led you down the path of wanting to start a production company? I always thought I should have a backup to being a camera operator. What that backup plan was, I didn't know until a friend called and said he needed help finding some TV crew. And would I help him? I'm like, sure. So I did. And he said, well, can you send me one invoice and pay everyone for me? I'm like, absolutely. And I was like, boom, that's my business idea. It kind of grew every year. And once we hired one person, it grew a little more. And then we scaled a little more. Once we hired another uh, one person take care of all like the business side of the business. And yeah, to the point now where I don't even do camera work anymore. I, I just work on the two businesses. Do you miss the camera work? I miss the people that I would see because my friends are scattered around the country. But yeah. my camera work for the last 20 something years took me on the road. I didn't work really local sports anymore because I worked with NBC and the World Wrestling Entertainment I traveled four or five days a week. So it got to be difficult. I would imagine as well that the situations where you're operating a camera that's got a platform that it's on, but then there's when you're sitting on the sideline of a sporting event, you know, a basketball game or whatever, and you're holding the camera, I would imagine it takes its physical toll too. Yeah. I've had three back surgeries, three concussions. It yeah. definitely took its physical toll, Sounds but I like loved it. it. So the production company now you're operating pretty much all over the country, right? How big is the core group in the company that manages all this with you? There's three of us. Wow. So pretty small core group that's able to essentially do all of that sort of we have seven hundred and training as, and all of it. Yeah. Seven hundred as needed employees. Well, that's great leverage for you. The fact that you can operate with the seven hundred people with just a three person yeah. core team. What have been your favorite events that you've done over the years? Definitely the Olympics, Kentucky Derby, WrestleMania. I had this very funny event one time living in London, was coming out of an event with a bunch of banking people and at the O2. I'm sure you've been to the O2 yeah, at some point in your times. life. Yeah. So you got all these people walking out in suits from this event during the day that they do at the O2. And that night's event for the evening was a WrestleMania event. And oh, I was yeah. laughing, walking out the door, just thinking like you could not get two more different groups of people crossing paths coming out of and into the O2 that night. I didn't really even realize that the WWE traveled that much internationally until seeing the big crowds coming in for that. that yeah, that I was probably the there. Yeah. yeah, maybe this would have been probably, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, so a yeah. while ago. How about the live streaming? Is that really taking off in the post-COVID run-up? The live streaming first started with doing you know fully virtual productions. We would work with a lot of athletes like Charles Barkley, Magic Johnson, Tiger Woods, just to name a few. And we have 20 contributor kits, we call them, where they're high-end okay. gaming laptops with webcams, professional USB microphones and ring lights and ethernet cables. And since they're our computers, as soon as they hit the internet, we can dial into the computer, focus the camera, change the color temperature of the camera, control the mm. audio, and then we work with whoever we're working with to make sure that the camera shot is good. And then with our clients, we help create a full-fledged television production where everyone is completely virtual. 
And now we still do those sort of productions, but we also moved into doing the hybrid or in-person events. And they just ship everything back to you afterwards. Yep. So it's a big change going from being a camera operator to running your own company. When you think back to those early days of being a essentially a solopreneur, if you want to call it that, what surprised you the most about running your own business? Yeah, I never thought I would be doing anything other than being a camera operator. That surprised me the most. And I really made the mindset change that I was a camera operator with a business on the side. I made the mindset change to becoming an entrepreneur that shot camera. And Mm. now I'm just fully an entrepreneur. What were some of the mistakes that you made in those early days as an entrepreneur running your own business? Do you remember anything in particular from back then? Lots of them because I was traveling. I was a camera operator. So one of my biggest mistakes was not having help. I was trying to do everything myself. So when a client would call and say, hey, can we cancel this position? We overbooked by one. I'd say, sure, okay. And without being in the proper location to write it down or take a note, I'd just say, okay, and forget to cancel that person. It would cost me a lot of money because I would forget to cancel the person and they would still show up. And my client would say, well, we told you to cancel that person. So how do I charge? Yeah, that's an expensive mistake to make in your early days. I had to find a way to not speak to clients or take calls or manage it in a different way when I wasn't prepared or in the proper place. Yeah, that happens to me all the time too, where like you say, you take a call or you you get an email and you just, you aren't really either physically in the right place or mentally in the right place and you just forget to follow up on something in the way that you should. Are there a lot of companies doing what you're doing in terms of having a roster of production crew that you're able to deploy out to different events? There are companies, maybe one in, I wouldn't say every state, maybe one in major markets. And then there's one bigger company nationwide, but there's, there's companies that do what I do in other big markets across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. And what do you do to set yourselves apart? Well, how I tell or try to sell ourselves is what you get differently with our company is like you asked before there's three of us, core team. If you have a question about the crew, you get me. If you have a question about the invoice or the billing, you get Lori. Or if it's an HR thing, it's Jen. And that's it. I'm the one that makes the final decision on who goes on what show. I know everyone's skill sets. It's not like I'm calling people that are in a different state and I don't know who I'm putting on shows. I do my best to give the director and producer, the best people that are available. We like to say we're a small company and we give like personalized service. You're doing some teaching as well more recently, right? Yeah. When I told you about that first job, I met a lot of good people that mentored me. And I always had mentors throughout my career at every stage and whether they were fellow camera people or directors or whatever. So I wanted to pay it back and we developed the broadcast sports course and we wrote a manual on what to do from the second you parked your car at the venue, what you would have to do to the second you got back into your car at the end of the Mm. night. Also included in that manual is what your job responsibilities were. If you're a utility, an audio person, if you're a camera person, how to shoot baseball, basketball, soccer, hockey, boxing from every camera position in a pretty general format 
because it's all pretty much the same, but some directors kind of tailor it to his or her own needs, yeah. but it's all pretty much a formula. And then we had a two-day boot camp where the first day we provided everyone with templates on how to email clients the right way, what to say. And then we provided them with a script from what to say when they're on a phone call with them. We provide them a list of who the clients are and their contact number. And then we brought in a lot of the equipment that they would see on site. And we taught them how to coil cable the right way. Everyone left knowing how to build because a camera, a big studio camera comes in about five pieces, how to build a camera and take it apart and do it again and do it again. That way, the first time they saw it on their first day at work was not the first time they were seeing the equipment. Sounds like a great course. Yeah, it was great. And we were fortunate that we had five people take it the first time. We yeah. hired four out of five of those people to work with us on a okay. freelance basis. And that yeah. fifth person actually got a full-time job somewhere in TV production. Yeah, that's awesome. You have a podcast too, right? Yeah. We have a podcast called the TV Crew Talk I just interview it's a lot of my friends in the industry, yeah. just talking about the industry. And it's a way to get younger people to get excited about the industry because the age of freelancers is kind of getting up there. And COVID really forced a lot of people to retire after taking two or three years off or a good amount of time off of work. They found it difficult to go back. And that was the other reason for starting the course was the age of a lot of the people I was working with was really getting up there. It's a physical job. Me, yeah, it is a physical job. You asked me about my audience a little bit before we started. What's your audience look like? Is it all sort of people who are in the industry, but also people who are thinking about it? Yeah, exactly. How often do you do your episodes? I was doing them every week. And then our company got this big soccer contract that really yeah. took up a lot of my time. So I had to yeah. put it on pause, but I think we're going to restart it again this summer. It is a lot of work to do a weekly podcast. I can speak from personal experience. Yes. How do you think about spending your time more generally? Is there a target mix of things across the podcast and the teaching and the live streaming company and the production company? You've got a bunch of different things going on. So how do you yeah. try to balance your time? I try to balance my time. And one thing I want to add to that is I want to start speaking on stages at events because I have a lot of good stories. And I think my path is a good story to tr help inspire other people. And I had a business coach that gave me a lot of good advice. And basically, I spoke about the three core people in our business. One yeah. person runs each of the two businesses. I kind of oversee both. I stay in my lane. I only do the 5% at what I'm good at. Yeah. And I let Jen and Lori handle the rest. Try not to get involved in that other stuff unless I'm needed. Because frankly, I'm not that good at it. And they're way smarter than I am. So I try to get up early, do a little bit of work at the beginning of the day, get a workout in because I feel like that's super important and yep. then handle what's needed to be handled as quickly as possible, answer, get to clients as needed and leave time open for myself and family in the middle of the day or at the end of the day. And when yeah. it's over, I try to be as attentive to my family as possible. Apart from the technical skills, you talked about the 5% that you're really good at. What are the other things that you're really good at just from more of a business perspective? Knowing how to talk to clients, selling yeah. our business without being salesy. I'm not a good writer. I'm a better verbal communicator over the phone. Yeah. So I'd rather jump on a quick Zoom call or a telephone call than exchange emails back and forth. 
if if it's an important email, Jen, my wife, our COO, proofreads everything. So that's our protocol. And what have you had to work more so to develop as a skill? Learning how to do Excel spreadsheets, things like that. When a client needs an estimate yesterday, but I'm the only one around to do it. And if I make a mistake, that could cost money. So we had to come up with a system. How are we going to do an estimate when no one else t- can do it? Yeah. So, and is that normally Jen or is that Lori? Well, it's Jen in Veridity, the live stream business, Lori yeah. in the other business. So we have a lot of systems in place. So either any of the three of us can jump in to the other roles if needed. And Jen could do payroll and HJZ if needed. Lori can do payroll and VES if needed. Howie can't do payroll anywhere. Which I assume is for the best of everybody, right? <laughs> exactly. You talked about mentoring at a couple points in the conversation without necessarily naming names. Like, What are the types of people that who were mentoring you and what did they do to help you along over the years? Yeah, well, Ted, a camera guy who I met on my first job, helped me get my second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth job. I looked up to him and I just learned how to shoot sports from him. He helped get me many, many jobs. And there was other camera people that did the same. The director from NBC, John Gonzalez, basically, when I first met him on that horse race, from that time on, took me on every show that he worked on at his career at NBC. And then because I worked on the XFL in 2000, which was a partnership between NBC Sports and the World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. I met the wrestling people on the sideline. Things kind of fell in place. Someone Mm. got let go and I met the right people, being in the right place at the right time, doing a good job and giving 150% led to me getting that job that I stuck with for over 20 years. It's great that you've had those people who've helped you along over the years. Not everybody's that fortunate, particularly to have people who take you under their wing and create opportunities for you. Yes, but people can only do so much for you, right? And you have to be willing to run with it. And I've paid it back and continue to pay it back to help people launch their careers because this is a hard industry to get into. So yeah, it's, it's part of it. You talked a minute ago about how the people who are doing this are getting older, right? Are skewing older. Are are we hitting a point where there's going to be a shortage of skilled camera operators or is it not quite there yet? It's not just camera operators, it's every position. And yes, we are there yet. Uh, It's audio people, it's replay people you see, people that control the video levels of the camera equipment. It's Mm -hmm. everyone. There's definitely a shortage. So there's opportunity for somebody who's legitimately interested in this space. You say it's hard to get into at the same time. It sounds like there are jobs to be had if you put the time in. When younger people call me for advice... I steer them what position to go to based on what they tell me they're interested in. Because for example, we have two soccer games and three studio shows operating tomorrow, which means we have 12 replay people working. If one of them calls in sick, there's no one available to take their spot. So fingers crossed that no one calls in sick or gets hurt, God forbid, or something happens because there's literally no backups. Yeah. Which I guess puts you a little bit on the razor's edge. On days like that. So you mentioned wanting to start doing some live speaking. What else is ahead for you in the various aspects of your business that you're in? We're in the process of scaling Veridity Entertainment, doing bigger events, bigger sporting events 
and putting my face out there more as a speaker on stage, that'll definitely take some time. Couple last questions. When you look back, right, and think about your career, what do you wish somebody had told you back when you were in your early 20s that you know now? Yeah, I didn't realize, I didn't know that doing what I loved would take me away from family so much. Yeah. I missed a lot of events and that was the hardest. But what I did learn and what I did try to prioritize was family first. And I always tell that to younger people first because a mentor yeah. told me that phrase, always put your family first. So live with that till now. And I try to instill that in younger people that the jobs will always be there. They'll still come, even though sometimes it's hard to justify it yeah. in your head to turn things down. But if you're good enough, they'll come. Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, it's a demanding industry, right? Certainly that's the way it's, it's portrayed to the broader public that there's not a lot of forgiveness in the moment for things going on in your personal life. So I would imagine even putting family first is a bit hard in the industry, just given the culture that I think pervades live entertainment, live sports. Yeah. You know. I mean, take golf, for instance, there's golf tournaments every single week. They want the same camera operators, same replay people, audio people, everything doing every yeah. golf tournament. Football is a 16 week commitment. That's a lot of weeks. A lot of weeks. And it's not one day. If you work on Sunday night football or Monday night football, it could be traveling Wednesday or Thursday, depending on what position you're doing. Any last bits of career advice that you would want to give anybody listening in the spirit of giving back? Trust your gut, follow your heart. What is it telling you to do? If you're not happy doing what you're doing, do some soul searching and take a risk. Go do it. You know, it's going to make you happy. There's no sense in going to or doing a job that is making you unhappy there and causing you to be unhappy yeah. in your personal life. Life is too short to be unhappy. That is absolutely true. It is definitely too short. And I think we're all reminded of that probably more often than we would like to be for one reason or another. Unfortunately, apart from that, this has been great. Been interesting to hear sort of what it's really like to be a camera operator. It's a space I knew next to nothing about other than sort of observing camera crews at sporting events that I've been at over the years. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you taking the time. I'm glad that you reached out to do this. My pleasure. Thank you, Jair. I'd like to thank Howie for joining me today. It was fun to learn about his work as a camera operator and his production company and his live stream company, his teaching, his podcast, and some of the other things that he's got coming in the future. Clearly, there's an opportunity in this industry for those who are interested and committed. And more generally, if you want to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a member of Pathwise. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.